District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. Welcome to episode 151 of the podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. I'm going to use today's episode to briefly go over what transpired in Deb Holland's confirmation hearing last week in the Senate. I'll talk a little bit about HR 803 and an interesting story where a wind turbine company is now going to be responsible for conservation efforts and private breeding for condors that died from their blades. Interesting story. So we'll talk about that on the podcast today. Over the course of two days last week, New Mexico Representative Deb Haaland, who has been tapped as Biden's Interior Secretary nominee, was subjected to questioning per standards for any nominee that goes through. This has been a common procedure across both Republican and Democrat administrations, but nominees for top cabinet positions must go through committee nomination process. And last week, the public was able to hear from Ms. Halland and learn about her positions and what she would support or do as Interior Secretary. Going into it, the media coverage was pretty bizarre. They were saying that Opposition to her nomination was rooted in sexist and racist undertones, but if you see any information relating to opposition or criticism of Ms. Halland, it was related to her policy positions and not her appearance or status as a woman, nor her Native American background. So that's why I live blogged the committee hearing, and that's why I've talked about offering and demanding fairness in the process because the media obviously seems really keen on not questioning her credentials, not questioning some of her positions. And we as the American public deserve to know where she stands on the issues. What I noticed briefly, I'll I'll point out a few things. She seemed to back away from some of her past radical positions, especially anti-fossil fuel attitudes, fracking, and some others. When pressed upon some of her positions on wildlife issues, she still seemed kind of unprepared and not cognizant of, let's say, things related to the Endangered Species Act. She wasn't really clear about things. She just said she was willing to work with said Republican member who questioned her about different energy issues. So she obviously pledged to carry out President Biden's agenda if she were to be confirmed and assume her role. And I don't know if her walking back from some of the comments was genuine or if she will, let's say, espouse those radical positions as Interior Secretary, the dark money groups and some of the special interest groups in the environmental sector have touted her pretty far left environmental positions, her positions against fracking, some of her positions for preservation. She has also previously supported trapping bans in New Mexico. She hasn't really been a sportsman's champion Openly, she has worked a little bit with Congressman Don Young on some things, but she isn't really an open sportsman. I don't see her supporting big game hunting or trapping. And there's certainly some other questions we should have. Granted, if she does cross the Senate Committee on Natural Resources and gets the go-ahead and goes to a full Senate vote, it'll be interesting to see which Republicans may vote for her. As noted by Politico, Chairman Manchin said that he would back her, 
nomination, and he is quoted as saying, while we do not agree on every issue, she, Halland, affirmed her strong commitment to bipartisanship, addressing the diverse needs of our country and maintaining our nation's energy independence, he said in a statement. He proceeded to say, I believe Deb Halland will be a Secretary of the Interior for every American and will vote to confirm her. And this is from last week, February 24th. There's also chatter that maybe Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who previously served chairman of the committee before Democrats took over, maybe a swing vote because Alaska had a pretty big native population. About 18% of the state's population is native. Perhaps she could be the committee vote. But if it were to go to a full Senate vote, I expect it to be one of the tightest of margins out there because it seems Republicans are, for the most part, united against Hallen's positions because she has supported the Green New Deal. She has indicated in the past that she wants to move away from fossil fuels, although in her committee hearing, she said she wanted to still factor it in, but didn't shy away from supporting the president's moratorium on future oil and gas exploration opportunities and on public land. So that's kind of the gist of it. I will include some reference points for you all, but if she were to be confirmed, it would be by a very narrow vote, I suspect. And that would include input from Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris. And we'll see when that happens. And when the full vote in the Senate does come, I will report on it for you all and report back to you what happens there. I want to talk about HR 803, and it's about wilderness areas and a bill that passed in the House recently, which aims to add extra protection to 1.5 million acres of public lands by designating them as wilderness. It would prevent new oil, gas, mineral extraction on more than 1.2 million acres of public lands and preserve 1,000 river miles by adding them to the National Wild and Scenic River System. And that was from The Hill. Wilderness areas have been common in terms of sportsmen's issues, they can be quite contentious. But before I dip into the contentious part of it, there was a pretty narrow margin of votes in the affirmative for HR 803. Eight Republicans broke away from their party and supported it. For the most part, committee members on the Republican side were opposed to this and specifically over the fact that there was no real concrete measure to address forest management issues, which have been long neglected. What the background of it from the Republican ranking member, Bruce Westerman, Congressman Westerman, and they had noted that HR 803 is a package of eight bills that creates nearly 1.5 million acres of new wilderness, which is the most restrictive federal land use classification permanently withdraws 1.2 million acres from mineral production, designates more than 1,200 miles of wild scenic and recreation rivers, expands nearly 110,000 acres of national monument land, and adds more than 400,000 acres of recreation, conservation, and special management areas in four western states. It would also create new management burdens instead of allowing agencies to focus their resources on what they already own. And his statement also said that H.R. 803 will effectively restrict forest management across wide swaths of federal lands. Does it pass in the Senate? I am not so sure because that's a far more divided chamber, of course. And the Wilderness Society, I'm going to read to you why certain groups were in support of this, independent of my personal beliefs. I just want to read off for you all sides of this so you understand what wilderness areas are and some of the limitations or restrictions. And the Wilderness Society says, what can you do in terms of lawful activity 
on wilderness areas, and they cite hiking, camping, horseback riding, hunting, fishing, photography, and bird watching as common activities that you can do. Moreover, Outdoor Life published in 2019 more specifically about what wilderness areas do, how they pertain to public land, not private property. And they write that wilderness sets up a high set of standards for agencies like the Forest Service. In these areas, human management is secondary to the laws of nature. Industrial uses such as logging or ski resorts are not allowed, and there are limits to traditional uses such as grazing. Hunting and fishing have long been recognized as appropriate uses of wilderness areas such as hiking, horse packing, and camping. However, motorized or mechanized transportation such as ATVs, snowmobiles, and motorcycles are disallowed and aircraft are limited to pre-existing primitive airstrips. Even game carts and mountain bikes are disallowed in additional wilderness areas. I've spoken to numerous people about wilderness areas and the limitations and when well-intentioned and targeted, perhaps these wilderness areas can do what is necessary to preserve wild spaces, to ensure that Public land users can maximize outdoor opportunities, but kind of like National Monument designation, they limit out people and certain outdoor participants from the equation. In this case, let's say someone is disabled physically, would they be ruled out from accessing a wilderness area to go, let's say, fishing or hunting. If someone has mobility challenges, can they not use ATVs? And obviously you can't use ATVs. So some argue, and many have concerns about these wilderness designations because it sections off land kind of for preservationist uses and limits people from accessing said public land area. I'm not sure I would support a bill like this, maybe individual portions. I don't think people want mining close to the Grand Canyon National Park. I think certain things do have to be kept wild. But the fact that there was no forest management included, I've heard the concerns and I and I understand the concerns. And like I said, in terms of movement in the Senate, I'm not sure. But we're going to see a lot of these efforts. I think the Wilderness Society said this is a good first step, kind of previewing the upcoming battle over 3030, which would section off 30% of public waters and public lands. And in California, as I'd had two guests previously explain, that bill was so toxic and did not include hunters and anglers as stakeholders that even Democrats there who are more preservationist minded had to pull back the bill. The bill was removed from consideration. So if 30 by 30 bills or resolutions look like the California bill, no way is it going to pass and it shouldn't pass. I think it would be too steeped in preservation. Let me know what you think about wilderness areas. Do you agree in principle with it? Do you think there are problems with wilderness area designations? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you want to talk more about it with me here on the podcast, I'm more than happy to welcome you on the show. A final subject I want to talk about is something that's really interesting. This relates to the California condor. And I remember hearing about how imperiled California condors were. I grew up there. I saw a few in the wild, more so in the San Diego Wild Animal Park. And that was super cool. They're not the prettiest of birds, but they certainly play an interesting part in the wildscapes, nature in California, and they're important to the ecosystem. Their recovery has been seen as a boon for conservation. And it was brought to my attention, a past guest of the podcast, Michael Schellenberger, who is a environmentalist, that some energy companies now have the opportunity to breed endangered California condors to replace those that were killed by blades. And he tweets, 
the same groups trying to close California's last nuclear plant, which provides cheap and reliable zero-emissions power for 3 million people, have just agreed to let the wind industry kill California condors, of which there are 337 left in the wild. And he explains a little more, and this is from the LA Times. I'll read for that shortly for you all. Someone please explain to me how this is about a protecting the environment and not about prosecuting a new religion. These people and entities have signed on on this horrible deal, and he tagged Joe Biden, the Sierra Club, Audubon Society, Bruneski, the National Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, ABC Birds, Defenders, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And a past article he cited from the Audubon Society added from the comments, if any other industry was slaughtering raptors like wind farms, the Audubon Society would be screaming for jail down, but you lay down passively for big wind. And he says, rest in peace, Audubon Society. I did read through that Audubon Society article that the past Fish and Wildlife Service under Trump's administration approved of this, but it's interesting it got the green light from the Biden administration. They were supposed to have questioning until February 5th, if I'm not mistaken. Here is what the Los Angeles Times says about this very interesting quandary. There are among the top goals of California environmentalists, preserving endangered species and replacing fossil fuels with clean energy. Yet in the blustery skies above Kern County, Tehachapi Mountains, where towering wind turbines churned with hypnotic rhythm, renewable energy and wildlife preservation appeared to be headed for a disastrous collision. After a decades-long effort to rescue the California condor from the brink of extinction, government officials say the critically endangered vultures are now at risk of being killed by spinning turbine blades. Roughly 100 captive-bred condors currently soar above the rugged range between the Mojave Desert and the fertile Central Valley. Although there has yet to be a documented case of a wind turbine injuring or killing a condor, the Fish and Wildlife Service says condor collisions are inevitable if the population continues to balloon. The growing potential for condor kills has alarmed not only federal authorities, but environmentalists and power company officials as well. A wind farm could face lawsuits, criminal charges, and ample bad publicity for investors. Condor deaths could also hamper one of the highest priorities of the new Interior Department, the development and delivery of renewable energy. Now, federal wildlife authorities are taking the unprecedented and controversial step of helping a wind energy company breed the scavengers in captivity so that they can replace any birds that are killed by the massive wind converter. This is really interesting to see the fact that they would, especially those in kind of preservationist environmentalist circles, embrace this reluctantly or not so reluctantly. I can imagine, let's say you hear an oil and gas company saying they have plans to privately restore and conserve, let's say, grizzly bears or gray wolves, although there's a debate over whether or not they are fully recovered and should still have protections, ESA protections, which I don't believe they do, especially when it comes to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem bear. But let's say like an oil and gas or a coal company announced a plan like this that they would rehabilitate and privately conserve these or imperiled species there would be so much outrage but the fact that a plan like this is kind of suspicious and suspect there's a lot of debate on whether or not wind is viable because of how much land is used to build and construct these turbines in terms of land use and conservation it maybe isn't so practical kind of the same with solar especially if a solar panel becomes decommissioned how much toxic waste is left behind there. There are examples where energy companies do work to conserve species 
through public-private partnerships. But if balanced use is possible, I've seen it firsthand with reclaimed coal fields and elk. There are many, many other great examples of it, but we haven't really seen balanced use with respect to green or renewable energies quite yet. I think it's been more successful on a smaller scale if it has been, but in terms of a large-scale project, that is highly debatable given the fact that there's just so much land used. And wind turbines have killed a lot of birds, including eagles, raptors, and bats. So the viability of wind turbines will be called into question, no doubt about it, and it should given some of the vulnerabilities that have been exposed with the technology, kind of the impact on birds, and land usage. So that isn't going away, but super interesting story. I had to talk about it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. As always, I encourage you guys to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. If you have Apple Podcasts, find our review section there, hit the subscribe button, scroll through past some episodes, head down to the review section, leave some five-star reviews if you like what you're hearing, if you enjoy the guests we've been having, and lend your feedback to the podcast. I'm all ears with what you guys have to say. Stay tuned for some more exciting guests coming through the pipeline. I'll be rejoined by Brad Smith from Walton Rods. We were supposed to be talking a few weeks ago. Our schedules kind of didn't align until recently, and he's going to preview some new product, and we're going to recount our wonderful steelhead trip that we all made to Pennsylvania in mid-December. You do not want to miss that. That will be out tomorrow. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.